Lord, we just come before you. We ask that you bless this time. You bless the study that we're going to do and that you guide. If anybody's on their way, you ask that you bring them quickly in. And we just thank you for your word in your son's name. Amen. James chapter 2, starting at verse 21. James has been talking about works and showing our faith by the works that we do. And we were talking about how that when God lives in us, works will come out of us because of we'll become more like him. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he, was, when he offered Isaac his son upon the altar? See you how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect? So we look at this and he says, he's using Abraham now as an example. He says, Abraham was justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar. And this is kind of an interesting statement. It shows God said certain things. We're going to look at this because we want to look at this added idea that he was justified by works. And, then, and um, I'm thinking that he was actually, that he was pronounced, because literally it says not justified, but pronounced just. And that God said, well, I see that you love me and that you care for me. And he showed him that it, that it showed that he was just. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. God has ordained us to do good works, not because good works makes him happier with us, not because good works makes us more saved or more righteous, but it shows that God is in us. And because right before verse 10, he says, verse 8, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then he goes into, for we are his workmanship, created unto good works. And again, the good works do not make us more righteous, do not make us more godly, do not make us God love us more, but they do show that he indwells us and that he is changing who we are so that good works flow out of us. And that is the natural progression. A Christian, a person who truly knows God, will become more like God and will perform godly acts, not because they're trying to perform godly acts, not because they think that godly acts are going to make them more acceptable or more righteous, but because they're becoming God and his acts will come out of them. And that's what we were created for, for him to fill us and for us to do the works that he desires us to do. So whose works are theirs? They're God's works, they're not our works. And then we're gonna go all the way back to Genesis 15, seems how James is talking about this particular act. We wanna look at it and see what really was happening in all of this. You're in Acts? Genesis. Oh, Genesis. In Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And that's a great statement in and of that. Is that God says, I am your protector. I am the one that's going to give you what you want, and I am your great reward. And Abram, Abram said, God, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house, this Eliezer, the son of Damascus, and Abram said, Behold, to me you have given no seed, and lo, one born 
in my house as mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This shall not be your heir, he, but he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him abroad and said, Look now toward the heaven and tell the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, And so shall your seed be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Okay? What's the action that he did? He looked up. That's all he did was look up. First he's complaining, and now he's looking up. And that was it. And God said, because you believed, he imputed to him righteousness. The same way we get saved, we look to Christ. We recognize that we're sinners. We recognize that we deserve, deserve punishment. And we recognize that Jesus paid for it. And we look to him, and he comes into our life, and we are imputed as righteous. And this is all it is, belief. But belief that puts us into some form of action. We're going to see Abraham from this point on following where God leads, not perfectly. We're going to see him make errors and do, do things that aren't right. But he's going to go forward and serve God. And he said, you know, God's brought him out of the area of Chaldees. And he says, you, I'm going to make you a mighty people. And this is something that Abram never gets to see the real finish of because he is going to wander around the promised land. <coughs> and during the time that he and Sarah are alive, he has two children. One that he did in his own strength and in his own flesh, and that's going to cause problems for his children for the rest of their, of their lives. And then the one that God says, this is your child. And God waited long enough for Abraham to know that it was a miracle child. Uh, Sarah can't have a child when she finally ends up having Isaac. She, she's past having uh, menstrual cycles, and, and Abram is up, up, up in 100 years old. So he's uh, you know, not all that uh, productive himself. So, but God does a miracle, and he puts life back into both of them. And they have a child. And so they know this is a miracle child. And this is what's going to happen when, this, when it happens. We're going to go to Genesis 22. Starting at verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that, Abram, that God did tempt or actually assay or, uh, or check the, the prove his faith did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. And he said, lo, take your son, your only son Isaac. And again, this is one of those things where we've already talked about. He's got another son. His son, his name's Ishmael. And God never counted Ishmael as one of, one of uh, Abraham's children. He never just, he totally ignored him. He says, that's not the child. That's what you did in the flesh. And this is what he does to us in our life. When we do things in the flesh, God does not recognize what's done in the flesh. He goes, that's not your child. It's your, you're my child. You're, what you do in faith is what counts. And so God ignores the flesh. And he says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and get you into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering in one of the mountains, which I will tell you. So he's being sent to Moriah, and Moriah is the mountains there where Jerusalem is. 
and the, the Mount Moriah is considered the Temple Mount where, and where the crucifixion happened. So Isaac is to be, Abraham is to take Isaac at the same place Jesus is going to be taken in a, another 3,000 years from this point in time. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two young men with him and Isaac his son and cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place which the Lord had told him. And on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to the young man, Abide you here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. So here we see he's getting ready. He's going to, they've gone three-day journey. This is something that happens a lot. Moses went out a three-day journey. Jesus was dead for, in the grave for three days. Uh, but the, the faith that he has, his whole purpose on this was that he's going to go offer Isaac as a sacrifice. And what does he tell the young men? The lad and I are going over there to worship, and we will return to you again. Okay? He already understands that Isaac is the child of promise. God has promised that Isaac, through Isaac, he's going to have unlimited uh, family and so he knows that Isaac is the one. He doesn't understand this commandment. He doesn't understand this request of God to go and offer the son. But as it says in Hebrews, he was absolutely confident that if God should make him go through with this, that God would resurrect Isaac. Because he knows that Isaac is the promised child. And that it has to go through Isaac. So even though he doesn't understand this, it's got to be a hard thing for him to do. He recognizes God was going to give Isaac back. And Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son and he took the fire in his hands and a knife and they both went and both of them went together. One thing to remember even though it says lad here it can also mean a young man and we do believe that Isaac was probably around 30 years old because he's a picture of Jesus. He is not a little boy. This is a man that if he'd really wanted to challenge his father when he went to put him on the altar could have could have done it. So Isaac is being very obedient to this point as well. Isaac has great submission to his father, even though he doesn't understand it. I don't, it doesn't say that Isaac told him what was going on or what was happening, but he has got the confidence that his father is not going to harm him and that God is not going to harm him. He also knows he's the child of promise. He knows that, the, that he's the, 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 the seed through which all nations will be blessed and that all nations that the, the seed will come that they'll number the sky stars in the sky and the sand of the of the sea of the of the desert and Isaac spoke to his father and said my father and he said here I am my son and he said behold the fire and the wood but where's the lamb okay, where's the lamb for this burnt offering and Abraham said my son God will provide himself for he burnt, uh, provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. Abraham had great faith that God was going to do something. Even if he had to offer Isaac, he was absolutely sure that God would resurrect him or that God would prevent this from happening and give him a, a lamb. But he wasn't sure how. And this is how we walk through most of our life. We do not know or understand how God will answer any situation. We end up just serving God, wondering what he's going to do, how is he going to do, we look at it, nothing makes sense, and oftentimes doesn't make sense. And then when we get through it, we go, oh, 
how obvious the answer was when we get through the problem and we look back on it. The, the, the adage that hindsight is 2020, and you look back and say, oh, yeah, there we go. That's, wow, what a perfect answer that was. And how many times have we done that in our life? We go through, we don't, see the, we don't see an answer, we don't see an answer, we don't see an answer, and all of a sudden, God comes through with an answer, and we look back and go, wow, yeah, it was obvious if I saw all the picture. And this is God. He sees all the picture. He knows all that's going to happen, and he knows the purpose for letting us go through things. And even when we have to go through pain, God has a reason for it. It's to teach us to trust in him, to, that he's still in charge. And also that Satan doesn't like us. And we've always got to remember, Satan does not like God's children. He does not want us following God, so he's going to try to give as much pain as God will allow him to give us to try to separate us from God. This is a test that Abraham's going to do, and this is a hard test. I don't know that I could have done this kind of a test. And yet, I'm not Abraham. God's got other tests in the, out there for me to take. But God throws tests at us, to so, not so that he'll know what we're going to decide. He knew what Abraham would do. But he wanted Abraham to know how faithful he was and how he was going to be following. So many times God puts us in a test that says, are you going to follow me? And our initial instinct is, yes, I'll follow, you, follow him. And then we wonder how we fall on our face as we, as we look up and say, wow, that test was harder than I thought it was because I was doing it in my own strength. Or, Valerie, that test was easy. God, you did a good job of keeping me in that test because it's his strength that did it. So he says, God will provide. And verse 9, And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar of, upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called out to him and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, I am here. And he says, Lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that you fear the Lord seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. This is a picture, but it's also the picture of what Jesus did on, on that same mountain in another two, two to 3,000 years. God put his son on the same mountain, but did not pull back the knife. And Jesus paid the penalty on the cross as our sacrifice for our sin and total commitment and we think about the total commitment that Jesus had because at any time Jesus could have said, Father, these, these people just aren't worth it. I don't care about them anymore. I just want to come home. We'll just let them all go to hell. They're not worth it. And yet he did not do that. And you want to think about that, how much pain he was even before he went to the cross. He had been scourged, which oftentimes was enough to almost kill you. He was beat. They plucked the beard out of his face. They punished him and tortured him. Any one of those would have been enough to kill him and say they're not worth it. And yet he went to the cross and said, Father, I'm going to go ahead and do this. This is what we agreed. I'm going to take this pain. And knowing that the greatest pain was still coming, the pain of being separated from his Father and the Holy Spirit when he became sin. And so he went to the cross with this pain coming ahead of him. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. 
And Abraham went and took the lamb and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh Jireh, that is to say, the Lord shall, in the mount, the Lord it shall be seen. And the angel of the Lord called upon Abraham out of the heaven a second sign and said, By myself I have sworn, said the Lord, to, and because you have done these things and have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing you I will bless, and in multiplying your seed as the stars of the heaven, as the sand which is upon the sea of the shore, your seed shall possess the gate of his enemy. So Abraham's work to go forward with God showed God that God could trust him. Or not showed God, but showed Abraham that God that that he trusted God completely. And God said, Because you've shown this great obedience, I am going to bless you just as I said said I would. So here we find Abraham, and James is looking at Abraham and saying, This is where you want to go. This is what you want to do. And Abraham is going to serve God for his lifetime, knowing that God is there ready to bless him, watching his blessings, watching what God does. He has, he's a rich man by their standards. He has everything and he has his son. And God says, I am going to take this son and I'm going to bless him. He is going to be the great seed. So now back to James. <laughs> Verse 23. And the scripture was filled which said, Abraham believed in God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness and he was called a friend of God. This is quite a statement. God called Abraham a friend. And that's, you know, think about this. God, the creator of the universe, calls one of his creation friend. This is the goal of most parents is to eventually one day raise their children in such a way that as their children get older that they can become friends with their kids. Not just parents but actually become a friend for the, of their child. And here Abraham gets the privilege of being called a friend of God. And we want to take a quick look at those verses where God calls him a friend. One is in Second Chronicles. Chapter 20 and verse 7. Are not you our God who, has driven, who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the seed of Abraham, your friend, forever? God, uh, Abraham is called God's friend forever. This is a very special title. It's not just his servant, his, his worshiper, but his friend. And this is the special thing for us as the church. We have the same titles going forward. We are not just his servants, his slaves, his, his individuals. We as Christians become the bride of Christ, a special, intimate, relationship with the God of heaven by being called the bride. And beyond that, God says that we are his children. He adopts us into his family and says, 
you're not just my creation, you're my, you're my very family. This is kind of even more special than what Abraham, Abraham's called his friend, but this is so much more special for what Christians are called. We get to be God's children. We get to be the bride of Christ. We get to be accepted in the beloved. We get to be totally declared perfect and righteous in justification. Even though we know we're not, he says, you are saints, you are perfect, you are righteous, you are holy. This is such a special thing that we have with God that he says that we are much more than, than what we think we are. And too often we, we belittle ourselves and we think too little of ourselves and say, we're, well, we're just, we're just sinners on this earth. There's nothing special about us. And God says, no, I have declared you perfect. You're my saints. You're my righteous bride. You're my children. And all of that comes with everything that being an adopted child means. We have the inheritance with God. And even more, he says, we're, in, we're his inheritance. He takes great pleasure in us. And you know, that's an amazing thought that God takes pleasure in us. His creation, and he wants to take pleasure in us. And we need to really understand that. Another place where it says that he's God's friend is in Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, who, who I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. God, again, we see him calling Abraham his friend. And he made promises to his friend that his friend would always have seed, that anybody who blessed Abraham and his seed would be blessed. Anybody who cursed Abraham would be cursed in his seed. And we've seen this over and over in history, that when people bless Israel, they support Israel, they are blessed. When they curse Israel and harm Israel, they receive a curse in, the, in, the, in return. And we've seen this over history, over and over again. And we, we're seeing our country, our country's been blessed over the years that it's blessed Israel and, and, and helped them out. But every time that we've made decisions against Israel, we can look at bad things that happen even in our own country. We make a decision against Israel and something happens in our country. And we have a government right now that's wanting to pull away from Israel. And if we do that, then all bets are off on this country when, when we come to trials. Because God's saying, you're not going to support my people, you will be rejected, especially if we actively go against Israel, which it looks like they want to do. And this is something we've got to be careful. Abraham was called God's friend, and he is taking great care of taking care of Abraham's seed. Just as most friends do, if somebody dies and, and, you, and you see his children, you know, you have a real close friendship with somebody and, you, and they die, you usually take a little more concern with their kids. You almost consider them almost like your kids a lot of times. You know, these kids grew up with us. We went on, you know, trips together. We went on vacation, you know, uh, you know, trips to the amusement park together. I know their kids. We went camping. You know, we, we did family events. Uh, we did all these events, and you grew these kids grew up with you, and you have a tighter bond to their kids as well than just oh, they're just kids. But God has said. Abraham's children. They're Abraham's children. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to watch out for them. I'm going to protect them. And when they didn't follow him, he sent them into judgment. Why? 
all judgment is always set up to bring us back to God. He wants us, when we fall away from him, he'll send judgment. And that judgment is to draw us back to him. It's not there to hurt. Just as true discipline does not, is not designed to hurt the individual. Now, there is pain in discipline, obviously. Because if it doesn't hurt, they don't learn not to do something. But the purpose of the discipline is not to hurt them. It is to teach them to not be disobedient in the future. And we've seen people and kids who have not been disciplined in their life. They're a nuisance to everybody that they come in contact with because they don't know the difference between right and wrong. They don't know that when they do wrong, pain happens and there's problems in their life. And then they just bring pain and problems into everybody else's life. But if you have discipline your children and they feel the pain, they do something wrong and there's pain associated with that wrong. And whether it's physical pain or psychological or emotional pain, there's pain involved with it. In the workforce, if you do not obey the boss, you usually will end up with the ultimate pain eventually of possibly losing your job. Sometimes being suspended for a period of time. But there's pain. And in the case of the job, it is a pretty sharp pain sometimes because that money is supposed to turn into the, the money to pay the rent and the utilities and the gas to get the car, uh, keep the car on the road. So that is a pretty sharp pain, both physical in some cases and emotional and psychological. When your kids are young, corporal punishment is really effective on a young child. You give them a smack on their bottom and they feel the pain of doing something wrong. As they get older, other things are more effective. No, you cannot go on the date on Friday night and use the car because you did this, this, and this. And you're going, no, you cannot do this. You cannot go to the game on Thursday because you did not do whatever it is you told them to do. Didn't do your homework, whatever it might be. But we have a cause and effect. You don't do this, then you don't get to do something you want to do. And this is what discipline is all about. And God does the same thing with us. Oftentimes you'll say, well, you know, you weren't being obedient, so I'm not going to let you have the blessing of having a wonderful worship experience with me because you have not confessed your sin and you have, and you're, have sin in your heart. No, you're not going to be able to be the teacher of this class that you really wanted to be the teacher of because you're not a good example of righteous living. And God does whatever it takes to discipline us. Sometimes it's even the physical where, he, where he'll take things away. He'll take away a possession of ours. Sometimes harshly take away a possession of ours. In, in the, you know, take away a vehicle because of our disobedience and in, in misusing substance, substances and everything. And God says, fine, you want to do that? We'll just, we'll cause you great pain. Oh, you wanted to do that? Let's get you stopped by the police and lose some of your money. Oh, you wanted to do this? And he tries everything short of taking our life away from us. But if we continue to follow down the wrong path, sometimes he'll take our life away from us and say, well, you're being such a bad example and you don't seem to want to repent, so I'm going to just take you home. And he will do that if that's what it takes. But God is the one who knows exactly what it takes to bring discipline into our life. And he will always start at the lowest level of discipline, a little smack on the hand saying, you shouldn't do that. And when we are disciplined and we're paying attention, we go, oh, God, I, I'm sorry I did that. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm going to stop. I repent. And if we don't listen to him, he gets stronger and stronger and stronger discipline. 
I've already said many times when I was younger, I used to take a two-by-four for God to get my attention. He had to do serious things to me to get my attention often. But God does what it takes to get us, to give him, for us to give him the attention we deserve to turn around and to confess our sins and to repent. And those two are very much important in our life. The first one is to confess our sins, and that is to say the same thing God says about it. it it's not going to God and saying, God, I made a mistake. God, uh, you know, I, made, you know, I have this little problem in my life. No, confession is, God, I have sinned. You call it a sin, God, I call it a sin. And until we will call something a sin, we are not seriously going to dwell, deal with it because we're just going to look at it and, you know, well, I, it was a mistake, or, oh, God, I, you know, I'm just an alcoholic. I couldn't help myself taking those drinks. You know, and God says, no, I want to call being drunk a sin. And when you're willing to call it what it is, we can work on getting it fixed. God, I'm sorry I stole, but you know, I'm just a kleptomaniac. And God says, nope, you're not yeah. calling it a sin. Yeah, you're not calling it a sin, so we're not dealing with it. But God is saying, call it a sin, confess. Homologeo, say the same thing as God calls it a sin, we need to call it a sin. And then we repent. We turn away from what we're doing and we turn back to God and say, God, I am really sorry I'm doing this. Please help me. I'm coming back to you. Sin always catches up with you and you will reap the results of it eventually. But this is what the psalmist was keep always complaining about. God, why aren't you disciplining these people? Why aren't these, why, these people aren't living good. They're not good people, and yet they seem to have everything. People will look at the rich who are getting their money dishonestly and, and by cheating people and go, God, how can you let them get away with all of this stuff? But the most important thing is they're not getting away with it because God has not closed the books. And we've talked about this several times. Just because it looks like everything is being gotten away with doesn't mean it is going to be because God has books that are going to close eventually. And we talked about this. The farmer, you know, planting his crops. He goes out and he plows his field and spends a lot of gas, uh, gasoline money on plowing his field, sharpening the blades. Then he fertilizes the field. Then he throws out the seed puts more fertilizer on it and he discs it to keep the weeds from growing. If he closes his books at that particular point in time, he's going to look like a total failure. Well, God, I just spent thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars and look what I got. I got nothing. That is when he needs to look up and say, well, hold it. The farming season is not over yet. And no farmer is going to look at his books at that point in the in time and say, well, I'm nothing but a failure. Now, after the harvest and after he sold everything, now he takes the money he's got, matches it up to how much he spent, and then he looks at, okay, I made money or I lost money after the harvest is done, after all the expenses are done. We need to be careful, number one, that we're not judging our life and its processes before it's finished. Because we're learning, we're growing, we're planting seeds. We want to, and as we're planting seeds in others, we don't want to judge them at where they're at because we're still in the heart, we're still in the planting stages. We want to wait till the harvest comes and God says, there, see, there's the reward for the, for the planting. Not back there where you thought you were nothing but a loser, but the reaping of the harvest. But the sinners on the other side seem to get away with so much early on but God is not done with them. At the very least, when they stand before him in heaven and they've rejected him, they're going to get the ultimate death of eternal death. 
But often, even in the process of them gaining all this wealth and spending all this money on themselves, they are not content, they are not happy, they are depressed because they will find that money is not the answer. And it's always funny, those who don't have money look at the idea of having money and think, oh, well, if I just had the money to buy this, that, or the other thing, I'd be happy. And, they, and maybe they get lucky and they get a job that gives them the money or they get the inheritance or somebody gives them the stuff and then they realize all that stuff does not make you happy. These people that we're rich and we look at them and say, man, they, they've got to be happy. They've got everything I want and they're not happy. So many times you read about these movie stars or athletic stars who commit suicide because they get everything they thought they wanted and then they find out that it does not bring them the happiness. They got to be the star. They got to be the one that everybody's coming out. They got to be the one that everybody wants to be like and they still are not happy. They're still not fulfilled. I was talking to one of the guys in the prison who's a musician and he told me some of what he did. He goes, I, I, played, I played with this band and that band, and I'm not going to name the bands, but he toured around the, country, around the world with these bands. And he goes, he had everything he thought he wanted, and he never was happy because none of it was what he wanted. He was a musician in the big bands and not happy. Then he goes to prison, and he finds Jesus. And he says he's happier in prison right now than he ever was playing his music in all these bands because he's found God. He found what he was looking for and what he really wanted. I've heard the testimony of several people, especially sports stars, who think they got everything. They got to be the star of high school, which didn't fulfill them. They got to be the star in college, which didn't fulfill them. They got to be the star in, in the pros, and it never fulfilled them. And then they finally find God, and they go, Finally, I've got what I was looking for. Pascal said there's a God-shaped vacuum in the, in the soul of every man that only God can fill. And nothing else will fill it. And we try, we try hard to fill it with everything but God before we get to know him. And sometimes after, unfortunately. But everybody is trying to fill that thing that only God can fill. And a God-shaped vacuum is a pretty large vacuum, seems how it takes an infinite being to fill it. And we see this happening over time. Many people will try to find God in all kinds of ways. They'll try to find him in religion. They'll try to find him in alcohol. They'll try to find him in drugs. They'll try to find him in different religions as they try to find God. They'll try to find him in all kinds of activities uh, and usually to the excess. But this is what happens. People get what they think they want, but it doesn't fill that shape that only God can, that vacuum that only God can fill. And when you know God, and I've said this over and over before, I am so thrilled that I know God. I live a very contented life. I don't have everything that I would love to have. I don't have all the, I don't have fame. I don't have a lot of stuff, but I am content and I don't feel like I have missed a thing in this world by having God. And this is so important for us to understand. Are we content with God? If we're not, then we're looking for something that we, we may need to say, look at our life and say, do I know God? Because we should be content with Him. There was a song uh, 
back in the 80s where this person used to sing about, I know God, and even if there isn't anything in the future, I am content by knowing God. And this is something that's very important. One of the questions we're oftentimes encouraged to ask people when, they're, when we're witnessing to them, and they talk about how they believe they get to heaven as opposed to what we do, and if they don't accept Jesus, we go, well, I just have one question for you. What if you're wrong in your belief? And that's a powerful question. If I'm right and, and you're wrong, you're headed to hell. And they might ask you right back, I'll go, well, what if, what if I'm right and you're wrong? I'm going, you know what? I have not missed anything on this world. I have been content. God has given me what I need on this world. And if there is no heaven and, and hell in the future, I, am not, I have not missed anything. I have been content. But I know for a fact, because I know the creator of the universe in a personal relationship, that it is true that he's got a plan for me in the future. This is a great testimony that we can have, that we are content, that God does meet our needs. I'm not struggling to try to find the next great adventure. I just go with God and he gives me adventures that, that I don't even look for. Because he is the one that I'm content in. He allows me to serve him. He allows us to do great things. He allows us to, to serve him in a way that just is so surprising and bring people to him and hand them over to him and, and let them get saved. He puts us into adventurous activities where we get to just lift him up and be an example to the world of what it means to be a Christian and watch him do great things. Verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Again, justified, declared or pronounced to be just. And it isn't the works that justify. The works only show what God is doing in my life. He's in my life. He's filling me. He's changing me. And this goes back to what we talked about, being baptized in the Spirit when we get saved. Our whole being, our soul and spirit are dumped into the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit starts the process of changing us into being more like God. And we see this as we walk in God. I am not doing more works for God today than I did 30, 40 years ago because I am working so hard at producing works. I'm doing more for God and being more like him because he is in me so thoroughly that he is changing me to be more like him. And because I'm becoming more like him, I am becoming more loving, more caring, more desirous of their souls that they will grow for God. Because we look at this, what did Jesus do as he walked on this earth and he was abused every time he turned around by the righteous people? They, they questioned him, they tried to trick him, they attacked him, and yet he would come back and he would give them. Sometimes he was pretty harsh on them. You whitewashed sepulchers, you, you brood of vipers, who's, who's warned you that the judgment's coming? But he was always coming back and answering their questions with God's word. And he was, sometimes he would take the offensive and say, these are what you are. And this is why we walk in a very precarious walk. We're to show grace and mercy, but sometimes it means that we, by showing grace and mercy, that we bring people to judgment. Sometimes it means if somebody's harming us and trying to do damage to us, that, they, that we go to the police and say, this is what this person's doing. They need to be dealt with. So that they can be put in a place where they can have to face God. That is what ends up happening sometimes with people. 
Verse 25, likewise also, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and sent them out another way? And for those who don't know Rahab, Rahab was the, was the prostitute in, in Jericho who took the two spies, hid them away, and said, you wait here. And she sent the king and his soldiers off the opposite direction and then sent them out by night by lowering them over the, the fence. Uh, the gate. And it's kind of interesting because people go, well, see, she was rewarded for doing wrong. Well, this will get you into a very interesting question, and I do not believe that the ends justify the means, but Rahab did protect God's people. She protected God's people, and he allowed her to be blessed because of that. And that is God's option. He can do that kind of stuff every once in a while. He can say, well, you're going, you did this for the right reasons. You protected my people. We're going to see this in the, we saw this during the times of war. Does the spy, is the spy lying when he doesn't tell the truth to the, to the enemy? Technically, yes, but God uses it oftentimes. And is it right or wrong? I have a hard time with that question myself. I think it's wrong, but God has, God has done things with it. And he's used it to deliver his people at times. He's used bad things to, do, to punish his people. He's also done things sometimes that don't make any sense at all. To punish Judah, he sent Babylon in to take them captive. And Babylon was not a nice country. Now Nebuchadnezzar then got blessed by hearing God's word and apparently from everything we read in Daniel got saved. And then had an evil son take after him, and then another son that was not so good, and then a grandson that took over after that. But God finally judged Babylon because of some of the things they did in, in, in punishing Judah. And he basically said, you've gone just a little too far. You did not treat my people as kindly as I wanted you to, so now you're going to be judged. So oftentimes God will use bad things and then turn around and judge those bad things because they go too far in discipline. And... This is where God says discipline is important, but discipline should never be abuse. And this is something I, I look at people. Just spanking a child is not abuse. Now, if you take a, a thin, thin belt and, you, and, you get, and you're cutting the skin with it, now you're abusing that kid. You're no longer disciplining. You're causing severe pain and, and turmoil. But just a belt on the backside for a couple strokes is not going to hurt any child, a paddle or whatever. I agree with many that say it shouldn't be your hand. It's, your hand should be used only for showing love. And abuse is bad. And I don't want to ever make anybody think that an abuse is a good thing. My dad never spanked me in, in, when he was angry, and I didn't spank my kids when I was angry. I sent them up to my room and told them to wait. The abuse of a child is bad. There's no, no purpose in abuse. But discipline is something that will bring them to corrective behavior. And we all know, like I said, we said this at the beginning, a child who does not receive discipline is a pain in the neck to everybody that they come across. Spoiled. Because they're spoiled, they want their way, they don't know right from wrong, they whine, they cry, they, they have their temper tantrums, they have their, their demands that they get their way. And we're starting to see a lot of kids in the workforce that have never been disciplined. They're making life miserable on a lot of owners and managers because they want their way. 
I told one person she had to put her phone away because I wasn't paying her to talk on the phone. And she goes, well, you can't stop me from talking on my phone. And I go, yes, I can. You just won't have a job. So you choose. You stay on your phone or you're fired. So verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So James is wrapping up this section of works by saying, just as when your spirit and soul leave your body, your body is no longer animated and it dies. And it goes back to the ground and becomes dust and becomes food for the plants and animals and becomes part of other people. And it goes, so this type of example, faith without works is dead. Just saying I, am, I have faith is not going to get you anywhere. And this is why we keep going over and over again. Just saying the sinner's prayer does not mean somebody's saved. They've got to have faith. They've got to believe. It is not just saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve punishment. I believe Jesus died. Come into my heart. Just saying those words does not make you a Christian. You must believe the words. You must absolutely understand and know, I am a sinner. And I've said over and over, that's the easy one for people to believe because they all, almost everybody knows they've done wrong things. I haven't, I don't know that I've met anybody who truly doesn't understand that they've done wrong, haven't, that they do wrong things. The bigger problem is that all sin brings death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. When you sin, you have earned a wage, and that wage is death. That's the one that people have a hard time with because they'll go so many times, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, and I'm not as bad as that person. I'm better than most of the people I know, by the way. And so it can't mean just because I sin that, I that God's going to reject me because, you know, by what you're saying, you have to be perfect. And then you go, correct, you have to be perfect to get to heaven. Well, nobody's perfect and going, correct again. That's why we have to come to Jesus Christ who paid our price so that we can have his righteousness so that when God looks at us, he sees perfect righteousness. And he will say, here are my children, my perfect children in, in the righteousness of Christ. And we stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which he says, this is the right clothing. You can come into, you can come into the kingdom because you are clothed right, because you accepted and you totally understood and believed that you could not do it on your own. Too many people, though, want to say, well, it's too simple. I've, I have got to do something. Or it, it just isn't right if I don't do something. And God says, nope, you can do all you want, but it's not going to be acceptable. You can never do enough. You cannot please me. You cannot, you cannot be the one that earns your way into heaven. If there was a way to earn our way into heaven, Jesus would not have had to come to the cross and die for our sins. Because it would have been a waste of his time. If we could have earned our way into heaven, then Jesus should not have died because God would have just said, well, you, all you had to do was earn it. But he goes, you can't earn it. You cannot pay the price, so therefore I am coming to give you everlasting life because of my sacrifice. And that's what's important. The faith without works is dead. The works are generated because of who God is in me coming out of me. And that's where we're going to end. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come before you and, and just how much you love us and care for us. We ask that you go out with us today and, and help us to go forward. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.